Scripture today is Acts 2, 37 to 42. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me again? Oh God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you help us as we consider um, your word this morning to not simply be going through the motions, but to hear the voice of our God and Father uh, who loves us, who comes to us in Jesus and by the power of the Spirit uh, gives us new life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue in our season of renewal and we are um, each week uh, in this process as we are as a church just thinking about the future and looking forward, anticipating, asking, praying, God, where, where are you leading us? How are you clarifying um, for us the people that you have called us to be? As we move forward together, we are uh, continuing in this series where we're looking at uh, eight characteristics of the church in the New Testament. And this morning, we're thinking about the sacraments, uh, the role of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in the life of the church. And um, I, I've said each week that these, these marks, these eight characteristics of the church are things that uh, mark out the church as unique in the world, uh, that mark out the church as not simply a human organization or institution, but um, uh, there's a sense in, a sense in which the, the church, of course, is an organization. Of course, the, the church is an organism. Of course, the church is an institution, and yet uh, it is unique um, amongst all of those. And uh, the sacraments really are, are, are one of the ways that we see the uniqueness of the church because God gives the sacraments as a gift uh, to his people, uh, as a blessing to his people, as a simple and beautiful sign of his uh, grace towards us. I was thinking about the sacraments uh, this week in preparation, and I was thinking about um, you know, one of the hobbies I've kind of developed and cultivated over the last several years is a love for cooking. I've, uh, I love food, 
And I love to cook food, and it's really not fair to my wife because she kind of does the, the, the heavy lifting and, and the cooking for our family, and I just show up and cook something occasionally, and usually, if I say so myself, it's pretty amazing. And um, so my kids always love it when dad's cooking because they know it's going to uh, be a big deal. And uh, one of my favorite things to cook is homemade pasta with bolognese uh, sauce from scratch. And it's like a whole afternoon process. It takes hours to cook, and I make the pasta from scratch. There's really nothing like fresh homemade pasta. And, um, and the thing that I love about it is it takes hours to prepare, and then we sit down and we eat this meal that is delicious, and it's, and it's so simple. Uh, you, you can probably prepare homemade pasta with like $12 worth of ingredients, and yet it feels, it's, it, it feels like you're eating this kind of lavish meal. And I think that that's a great picture of what the sacraments are like. Uh, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, are, are incredibly simple, and yet they're also an incredibly beautiful, lavish picture of God's love for us. And so this morning as we talk about the sacraments, that's, that's what we're going to be talking about. And really what I want to help you see is that in the sacraments, God is taking something in many ways ordinary, the, the water of baptism, the, the bread and wine of communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, some, some very simple elements, and he's using them to do something very beautiful in our lives you know, if you look for the word sacrament in the Bible, uh, you won't find it. The, the word sacrament is not in the Bible, but it's a word that has come down to us through church history to explain what the Bible clearly lays out for us, uh, that there are two sacraments, the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of uh, the Lord's Supper. And they were both instituted by Jesus. Um, they were both practiced and observed by the early church. We read already, Lillian read for us, the um, kind of earliest account, really the birth of the, the church in Acts chapter 2. And there we see both the sacraments there. And they're given as gifts to the church, as tangible ways for us to experience God's grace. Uh, the sacraments really are, um, uh, the, the Bible's kind of teaching on the sacraments is really scattered throughout the New Testament. Uh, we see Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. We see uh, the church in the book of Acts um, practicing the Lord's Supper. We see Paul uh, talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. We see um, a baptism practiced in the life of the, uh, the early church throughout the book of Acts and, uh, and described a little bit in the epistles. And so this morning, really, we're not going to be kind of uh, diving into this one uh, passage uh, so much as kind of looking at what the Bible, the New Testament, says in a couple different places about the reality of the sacraments. Because the sad reality is that it feels like there's a lot of confusion about the sacraments in the life of the, uh, the Christian church today. And for some of us, maybe we feel like we just don't really understand what the sacraments mean. Or maybe we, uh, we wonder if we're um, like doing it wrong. Um, maybe we can be in, you know, come in, in line and we take the elements of communion and we go back and we, 
eat the bread and we drink the wine and we think, is everybody getting out of this something different than I am? Or maybe we wonder if we're missing out on something. Or for some of us, I think that the sacraments can feel like empty religious rituals. And so sure, maybe it's great to bring family together for a baptism and we get to observe the, the pretty ritual together, but does it really matter? Or maybe we, we take communion and as we do that, we're trying to remember that Jesus died for us, but then we leave and we just kind of go about the rest of our lives. Do the sacraments really make any difference at all? Or some of us just get lost in kind of the theological controversies around the sacraments, and there's been no shortage of those uh, throughout church history. Um, who should be baptized? What exactly is happening in the, um, the Lord's Supper? Where is Jesus present to us there? And we can get caught up in those conversations and be convinced that we have the right answers to those conversations and yet miss the point of the sacraments themselves. And so this morning, I'm not going to really try to answer those questions, um, particularly not really as interested in the debates that Christians have amongst ourselves about who should be baptized and when. Um, those are important, and I'm happy to talk more about that with you. But what I really want to help you see is the simple beauty of the sacraments. The simple beauty of the sacraments. Um, you know, maybe your experience of the sacraments has been like eating boxed mac and cheese. And that stuff is horrible. <laughs> and um, I want to help you taste the homemade pasta of the Lord's Supper to see the simple beauty of the Lord's Supper and the sacraments of baptism. The sacraments are beautiful. Um, and the, the Bible really lays out for us three, three reasons, I think, that the, the sacraments are beautiful. And so the first thing I want you to see is that the sacraments are beautiful because the sacraments give us our identity. The sacraments give us our identity. Um, in some ways, there's no more fundamental question than any of us that any of us have to wrestle with and the question of who are you? Uh, what defines who you are? The Bible tells us that the sacraments answer that question for us. The first way the sacrament, sacraments shape our identity that we see in baptism is that in baptism, God places his name upon us. When you were baptized, uh, you were cleansed with water and these words were spoken over you. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the name of God himself is placed upon you. No, many, no matter how many times I uh, say those words, I kind of always just uh, kind of catch in my throat. Um, because think about what's happening here. Um, what's happening in your baptism is that God is bringing you into his family and he is giving you the family name. Um, you know, all of us certainly, whether you are a parent or not, have talked to somebody who, uh, a couple who's expecting a child. And often when you're talking to a couple who's expecting a child, one of the questions that we inevitably ask that couple is, have you picked a name yet? And uh, sometimes they're really eager to tell you what the name is. We never told anybody before our kids were born because... Uh, frankly, we weren't going to change it, but we didn't want to debate it with family members. <laughs> um, 
And you know that that process involves a lot of thinking, maybe reading books or looking up names on the internet. And uh, we can't name, you know, our son this because there was a kid in my second grade class with that name and he drove me nuts. Um, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but whenever we're talking about that question, we know, you know, have you picked a name yet? The name that we're referring to is, is what? It's the first name and the middle name. And we're not really asking, have you picked a last name for your child? Because we know that typically um, there's no debate over a baby's last name. Why? Because it's the family name. Uh, the baby takes the family name because that's who this child is. You know, my uh, kids all have my last name because I have my parents' last name and you know, they, my dad got his last name from his parents. And, and so we have the family name. Why? Because it is who we are. There's a sense in which when we give the family name to our kids that we're saying being a part of this family is a blessing and it's an identity that has not been um, chosen by you, but it is something that you have been given as your birthright. And because you have the family name, the family name will shape everything about who you are. And that's what's happening in your baptism. Isn't that amazing? In your baptism, you are being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, these are not empty words when we baptize someone in the name of Father, the Father Son, and Holy Spirit. These are not, it's not like a magical formula where we're hoping something is gonna happen. This is God putting his name on you, adopting you as his child, welcoming you into his family, which is the church, giving you the family name. That is who you are. And what that means for you is this, that if you are in Christ and you have been baptized, who you are is that you are beloved of God himself. You are someone who has received the love of the transcendent almighty God. See, when Jesus was baptized, uh, it, it describes in the Gospels that when Jesus was baptized, it says that the sky was opened. It was torn open and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And the voice of God the Father says, this is my son who I love, my beloved. With him I am well pleased. And friends, what the Bible tells us is that if you are in Christ and you have been baptized into God's family, then every single thing that's true of Jesus is true of you. And so that means that the Father says the same thing to you that he says about Jesus. You are God's son or daughter. You are beloved of God. You are the one with whom God is well pleased. Now you might say, okay, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with baptism? Well, we live in a time where we tend to believe that spirituality is all about our feelings. And the normal course of life means that sometimes we feel great and uh, sometimes we don't feel so great. And sometimes we are overjoyed and sometimes we struggle with anxiety and with depression with self-doubt. And if as a Christian you believe that your standing before God is dependent on the way that you feel about God at any given moment, then your life will be a spiritual roller coaster. 
And that's why it's so beautiful to be able to point to your baptism. In your baptism, God has put his name on you and you are his beloved. And that is objectively true regardless of how you feel about it. You know, when you have been baptized, um, I mean, just in a sense that like my kids are Hale's kids on great days and, you know, (laughs) even on not so great days, they're still my kids, right? Um, Whether you feel like it or not, your baptism is an objective sign that points to the reality of who you are in Christ. On your worst days, you need something outside to yourself, something outside of your feelings to hold on to if you're going to survive um, this life. <clears throat> you know, Martin Luther, who was the um, kind of one of the leading figures in the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther was a, um, he was probably a very strange person individually. He was, uh, or personality-wise, he, he, uh, he was prone to depression And um, Martin Luther said that in those moments, he often felt like he was being attacked by the devil, literally himself. And so how did Martin Luther respond when he was being attacked by the devil? Uh, It's said that he once took a pot of ink and threw it against the wall and said, get away from me, devil, I have been baptized. Yeah, I mean, do you think anybody in the 21st century would say, like, this is my defense against the devil to point to my baptism? But what he's saying is, I belong to God and you have no claim over me. And the devil cannot dispute that because I have been baptized. Or think about it like this, tangible sign. Um, have you ever had this dream, the dream where you wake up and you realize that, or sorry, in your dream, you um, are late for a final? I had this dream again, like this week. I have no idea. Well, probably because I'm going to a class next week. This dream where I wake up and everybody's on their way to class and everybody's like, are you ready for the final? And I'm like, what final? <laughs> And um, inevitably what happens, I wake up from that dream and I'm still panicking. And I have to go down and actually this week hung on the wall in my office, my diploma that says that I graduated from college. (laughs) And it is great in those moments to be able to look and be like, I don't have to take that final because I've already graduated. (laughs) Something external. Uh, to look at. Your baptism is your diploma. It is proof that you belong to God. Even if you don't feel like it, baptism shapes our identity. If your identity has not been formed by God, uh, it will be formed by something else. And there are all sorts of algorithms and marketers who will uh, depend on that being true. If you go into the world looking to find yourself, which is what our culture says you should do, You will be shaped by anything and everything. You will latch onto something to give your life meaning. But if you have heard the voice of God say to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, I love you, then you go into the world already full, already content. And so you go into the world not to search for meaning, but to be a blessing to others. So baptism shapes our identity as God's people. But the Lord's Supper also shapes our identity. Paul writes about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. 
says, I pass on to you what I also received, that on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and broke it. And he continues, he says, he talks about the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then he says to us, do this in remembrance of Jesus. And then he adds this, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. What Paul is saying is that the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, goes by different names, I'll point into the same thing. It's a reminder that you are part of a story that is going somewhere, that we are remembering the Lord's death, but he's going to come again. And we are part of that great story that is headed towards a, a telos, an end, a, a destination. And so we were reminded that we are fellow pilgrims along the way to that ultimate destination. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we are God's people living cross-shaped lives, journeying now together until Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, everything finally will be made right and that sense of longing will be removed or will be rather fulfilled. You know, sometimes um, we'll be driving in the car. We have a family of six, and so we'll be driving in the car, and we'll start, you know, talking about something or other together. But often one of the conversations my, my kids want to have now is, Dad, um, if you could have any car in the world, what car would you have? And, of course, they really are doing this so they can share what car they want to have uh, <laughs> with me. But... Um, so they'll ask dad what car, if you could have any car in the world, what car would you, would you have? And, I, and they, they know at this point, like if I could have any car in the world, I would drive a Porsche. And I would take a Tesla as a backup, but like really I want a Porsche. And uh, my kids know when we play this game that dad wants a Porsche. And the, the funny thing about it is that I've never actually driven a Porsche. Um, but I'm sure that if I had a Porsche that I would be content for the rest of my life. And um, we can have this conversation in such a way that I actually begin to like go from dreaming about driving a Porsche to scheming about the possibility of, of owning a Porsche. Like somewhere in the world, surely there's a used Porsche that's for sale that's in my price range. And then my wife looks at me and kind of rolls her eyes and she says, you can never, ever, ever drive a Porsche in your life. And I'm like, why? And she said, because you're a pastor. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the excuse is. You could never roll up to a church on Sunday morning in a Porsche. It doesn't matter how free it was. And my hopes are just crushed. <laughs> and um, what the Lord's Supper tells us is that living with that kind of ups and downs of like, if I had that Porsche, then my life would have meaning and I would be content is never the ultimate aim. But the Lord's, Supper, Shepherd, the Lord's Supper shapes our identity by showing us that we are part of a story that is moving towards a climax when all things will finally be made right. That all of human history is moving towards a great feast that is about being in the presence of Jesus. And that is when we will finally be satisfied.
And though they are good things, satisfaction can never be found in the next thing we buy or the next promotion or in retirement or in the next vacation or if we get married or if we lose those last few pounds. God says, come to me, you who are poor and have no money, and I will give you wine and bread. Listen to me and eat, and you will be satisfied with rich food. We live in a world that says, you've got to make a name for yourself. Don't listen to what anybody else says about you. Your identity is yours to create. And God comes and says, Oh, you trying to create your identity, how well is that working out for you? And then he says, I will put my name upon you. I love you. Let me satisfy you. In baptism, I will give you my name and bring you into my family. I will feed you in communion. The sacraments are beautiful because they shape our identity. But secondly, the sacraments... Um, are beautiful because they welcome us into community. The sacraments are beautiful because they welcome us into community. And we see this in both um, baptism and communion. In fact, the word, I mean, the word community is in communion, right? Um, the, sacrifice, the sacraments invite us into community. Uh, in Acts 2, which we read a minute ago, we read that early in the life of the church, as people put their trust in Jesus they don't just become individual Christians, but they are baptized into the church. In 1 Corinthians 11, the reason that Paul is so distressed um, by the crazy things happening in the church in Corinth is because they are making the Lord's Supper about their own individualistic experience. And Paul is saying... Uh, What's happening in the church there is actually there are rich and poor people in the church. And so the poor people come to church after they have finished working. And Paul is saying to the rich people, everybody comes to the Lord's table together. The rich people don't get to come early, wait for one another. They're making a, a, this, this meal, this celebration of our unity in Christ about their individual experience. Uh, this is why when we baptize people, uh, typically we, we do that in the middle of the worship service. You know, we don't, we don't go somewhere else where this is happening kind of in a, in a private way. It, it's, a, it's a welcoming into this community. And this is why when we come forward to take the Lord's Supper, uh, because we're communing, yes, with God, but we're communing together. And so we hold on to those elements and we take them um, together as one. I mean, think, think about it like this. There is, a, there is an, a, an objective reality to the communal nature of the Christian life that is expressed in the sacraments. I mean, th think about something like this. Think about there's a person living in Canada, a Canadian. And uh, this, this Canadian decides that they, they really, this person loves um, America. Um, and... You know, um, this person decides that they love America so much that they have decided in their hearts to become an American. And so they, they begin saying, now, I'm an American, but they still live in, like, Ottawa. They don't, like, leave Canada. They don't come to the U.S. They don't become an American citizen. 
Um, now, we might look at that person and say, interesting life choices. Um, but you might be an admirer of America. The countries don't matter. I'm making a point here. You understand? <laughs> um, you, may, you might like America. You might admire America. You might um, appreciate the ideals embodied by this country. But unless you actually leave that country and come to the United States, you can't actually refer to yourself as an American. But sadly, what's um, the case for many Christians, I think, is that we think becoming a Christian is, is like a decision that we make on our own independently. But being a Christian, in, according to the Bible, means being welcomed into the community of God's people, uh, the church, through baptism. I mean, listen again to these, to these words um, at the end of Acts 2. Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Verse 46, day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, th this is clearly not referring to a privatized individualistic experience. And that might not sound like a big deal to you because we live in a time that is increasingly individualistic, but friends, our individualism is literally killing us. Uh, I was talking to um, uh, another pastor um, a couple weeks ago, and he was considering, he's looking for a new call, he's looking for a new uh, position, and I asked him why he wanted to move, and he said, well, we moved to the city that he, where he's pastoring now, he said, we moved there in kind of the early COVID year, um, and he said, we've been here for three years now, and we literally know nobody. <laughs> We've lived in this city for three years and we don't know a single person. So he said, we want to move <laughs> somewhere where we can uh, be new again and start all over again. Um, there have been all sorts of reports that have pointed this out, that the, the, the single biggest health risk to middle-aged men is loneliness. It's not obesity, it's not smoking, that loneliness is actually what's killing uh, Americans. And the sacraments are about God taking people who would never get along in the world and making us one community in the church. And that's what it means to be a Christian. In fact, that's, that's literally what the word, you know what the word Christian means? I mean, it sounds, you can say, okay, it means Christ one, Christ follower. Um, but the earliest name for followers of Jesus wasn't um, Christians, the earliest name used to describe those who followed Jesus was that they were called uh, followers of the way. And that was the term that was used for a while. And then when the gospel in Acts 11, we read about the gospel coming to a city called Antioch. And up until the gospel came to Antioch, Christianity had really uh, grown and expanded within uh, Jewish circles, but when the gospel goes to Antioch, something different happens. And the Roman Empire um, was obsessed with keeping the peace at whatever cost necessary. And so the city of Antioch, historians tell us, was a segregated city where the various 
cultures and tribes and tongues represented in that city lived in ghettos that were separated by walls um, so that people would only live with people who were like them and uh, so they could live with people that they could actually get along with. But when the gospel goes to Antioch in Acts 11, it says in Acts 11, 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Why? Because uh, people begin climbing over the walls to get to church together. And Christianity is no longer a, a Jewish sect, but uh, people from different tongues and tribes and nations are coming together in the church. And so they had to come up with a new word because it's no longer a religion of one ethnicity. Well, what does that mean for us? And what it means for us is that in the church, people get along who could never get along outside the church. The sacraments welcome us into community. But, but here's the reality. As soon as we say the sacraments welcome us into community, we have to say, but what does that mean? Because community in real life is not like community if you watch Friends on TV or um, you know, I've heard people talk about, you know, the great thing about CrossFit is that it's, it's such a great community um, of really fit people, I guess. <laughs> Real community is a lot more difficult than that. I, 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 read, I saw this video on YouTube a couple years ago. I don't know why I clicked on this, but the headline came up. It said, uh, the best intersection in the world. And I don't know why that was compelling to me, but I, I thought it was going to talk about like some random intersection in the middle of Ohio or something like that. But what it was actually talking about once I watched is the best kind of intersection in the world. And they, this video is saying that the best kind of intersection in the world, you know what it is? It's a roundabout. And uh, I thought it was funny because everybody hates roundabouts. But as they described it, they said, you know, you can be at a... Um, you know, stopped at a red light at an intersection. If you've got four lanes of traffic moving each direction, and um, the, say the speed limit on that road is 55 miles per hour, uh, you can put up a sign that says 55 miles per hour, but there are going to be people driving 80 down that street. And if you get in a head-on collision at 80 miles an hour, it's going to be bad. But a roundabout... I mean, I've tried to beat this. I can only take those things at like 18 miles an hour tops. And, and the, the, the most dangerous like collision you're going to get into is like a side-to-side -side merging sort of um, collision in a roundabout. And so the point of this video is that roundabouts aren't the best type of intersection in the world um, because they're difficult or despite the fact that they're difficult, the point is that this is the best kind of intersection in the world actually because it's difficult, because it forces you to slow down. And that's the point of community in the church. A community isn't um, better in the church like despite the fact that it's difficult. Community in the church is better actually because it's difficult. Because God, through um, his love for us in the sacraments, brings people together who are not like one another. And a beautiful community develops, not despite the fact that it's hard, but actually because it's hard. Because we have our own differences and preferences. 
Um, it means that we have to show up for one another instead of bailing at the last minute. It means we have to have hard conversations with one another instead of just disappearing. Community means that we raise each other's kids and we bury each other's parents. Community means that we bring meals when babies are born or jobs are lost. We are dying for community, and community is difficult, but community is beautiful, and the sacraments are what God uses to welcome us into that community. The sacraments tell us you are not alone. You are not alone, or or at least you don't have to be. The church is God's new humanity. The church is not for perfect people, and we, we certainly don't do community perfectly, but it's for you because God doesn't call the spiritually elite. He calls you and he calls me together. We live in a world that's literally dying for community and has no way to find it. And God has given it to us in the church. The sacraments welcome us into that community. The third thing, the final thing that I want you to see this morning is that the sacraments are beautiful because the sacraments are signs and seals of God's grace. In the sacraments, we see a God who comes to find us with his grace. Uh, Have you ever thought about the reality that you don't baptize yourself? Uh, You don't serve yourself the Lord's Supper. You might be the most masterful chef but you receive from God the Lord's Supper. God pursues us, he initiates, and that's what grace is all about, and that's what we get in the sacraments. God gives his two sacraments as signs and seals of his grace. There's a sacrament of initiation, and there is a sacrament of renewal. And um, there's an analogy here that I think is helpful Uh, for us to think about um, in the way the sacraments function. The sacrament of baptism is a sacrament of initiation. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of renewal. There's an analogy uh, to marriage here. And it's appropriate because Jesus describes his love for the church in the terms of a husband loving and pursuing his wife. And so in marriage, there is a rite of initiation. It's called a wedding. And um, to not, you know, be too blunt in stating the obvious, but if you have never been, you've, ne- you've never had a wedding, you're not married. <laughs> you know, you might really like this other person, you might love this person, but you're not married if you haven't had a wedding. Um, and so in the same way, in an analogous way, baptism is the sacrament of initiation. We only get baptized once. Um, strangely, I was baptized twice because I went to a church with bad theology and my youth pastor uh, knew that I had already been baptized and baptized me again like 18 months after I had been baptized. But I've still only been baptized one time. The second time was just a weird thing where I was in line with a bunch of other people getting baptized. Funny, huh? Because baptism, baptism is the initiation into the Christian life into the church, into the family of God. Uh, That's why in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go into all the world, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Discipleship begins with baptism. But also in marriage, I'm not going to be too graphic about this, but there is a... um, 
acts of uh, renewal involved in marriage where a husband and wife joyfully renew their love for one another. And in the same way, communion or the Lord's Supper is a regular way to repeatedly renew our love for God and more than that, to be reminded of God's love for us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's what the Lord's Supper is. We are remembering and we are proclaiming the gospel. Remember doesn't just mean that we are prone to forget. Of course it does mean that, but the opposite, I've said this before, the opposite of remember is dismember. And um, what, what that's telling us is that life in our world has the tendency to fragment us and pull us apart. And the Lord's Supper is actually knitting us back together, both individually and as a community. And that's what it means to proclaim. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a visible sign of our unity in Christ. The biggest challenge facing the early church Think about this. The earliest controversy in the, in the early church was, can Jews and Gentiles eat together? And the reason that was a controversy was because the Jewish kosher laws meant that Jews ate separately from everybody else. And the biggest controversy they had to figure out is, how can we actually eat together? How do we experience community together? At the Lord's table, we find people who would never get along in the world eating together. Thus, the Lord's Supper is a visible sign. It's a proclamation of the unity of God's people. The sacraments are signs and seals of God's grace. Baptism is the uh, sacrament of initiation. Communion is the sacrament of renewal. Uh, incidentally, that's why we invite baptized believers to the Lord's table. If you uh, have never been baptized and you have questions about that, I would love to talk with you about it. This is also why we ask children who have been baptized to wait until they have professed faith in Christ to come and take the Lord's Supper. Um, and typically what that, what that looks like is if you have a child who is ready to take the Lord's Supper, uh, the elders and I will meet with your son or daughter. We've done that many times. Actually, we're going to do that in like after this service, before the second service with uh, two of the kids who have grown up in this church so that we can affirm their faith and we can welcome them to the Lord's table. And all of us, the sacraments are a reminder that God pursues us with his grace. He initiates, he pursues, he loves, he puts his name on us and he lavishes us with his love in Christ. So let me finish with this. I remember as a brand new parent, um, my first son was born by C-section. Uh, we were in the hospital for a week after as Ashley was recovering. Uh, felt like forever, but it was okay because there were nurses that like, helped us learn how to take care of a newborn child. And I remember driving home from the hospital thinking, they didn't give us a manual. Like, how do we keep this child alive now that we're on our own? And um, it would be easy to get overwhelmed at the enormity of the task of parenting. But what I discovered in the weeks after um, bringing my first kid home from the hospital is that as much as the task of parenting an infant is incredibly difficult and exhausting. 
it is at the same time really simple. That really all you have to do to keep an infant alive is wash them and feed them. And that's exactly what God and his grace is doing for us in the sacraments. In our baptism, he is washing us and giving us his name. In the Lord's Supper, he is feeding us. He is nourishing and strengthening our faith, transforming us into people who more fully bear the family resemblance, who look more and more like the son whom he sent to love us. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you that you who speak to us also give us tangible symbols, signs, and seals of your grace for us. God, I pray that um, having thought a little bit about the significance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would be reminded um, that you don't simply yell about your love for us from a distance, but that you come to us and that you give us these uh, sensible pictures of the gospel that we can experience that that would make uh, celebrating the sacraments even sweeter for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.